Indeed, Lord, we proclaim that you are wonderful. We proclaim that there's no God like you. We proclaim, O Lord, that your love is wonderful. Your grace is wonderful. Your mercy is wonderful. We praise you, Lord, for you've been wonderful in patience and kindness. You are wonderful in righteousness and justice. Oh, Lord, we wonder at your holiness. We wonder at your power. We wonder at your wisdom. And we just shout hallelujah, praise and honor, majesty, dominion, and power be yours now and forevermore. Visit us, O Lord, in power, we pray. Show us how wonderful you are, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you can. I knew this morning was going to be special. I had a glimpse of it when my brother Colin sent me some video tweets or texts from the rehearsal with the praise team this past Friday night. They were over here at Colin and Erica's house praising the Lord and I was over on Mississippi Avenue praising them with him. I started to come, but I knew I'd mess everything up. And I don't know what the Lord does to get you ready to worship him, but I'm going to be honest. This morning, I, I, um, I stayed up too late last night. And I got up this morning with too little sleep and a little bit later than I should have. And I'm, I'm rushing and getting stuff together. And I'm, I get out the car, I get in the car to come here this morning. I made a mistake and it left the radio on CNN. So I had to hurry up, turn that off. And, and um, driving along, and I get up on, um, on Alabama Avenue, and uh, this little gray Saturn zoom up beside me and stop at the light. And I looked over there, man, and it was just sister in this little gray Saturn, windows up. She was praising the Lord, man. She was, she was praising, man, and, and just singing, and, and it must have been good because she started singing to him like, like this, man. And, and you ever pull up beside somebody and they jam on the radio, you turn your radio, you're trying to find out what station they are. And, and so I'm looking for the station, trying to match what I'm here with her. And, and she praising God, man. And, and that car was anointed because the next curve she took doing about 50, right? And, and she praising God. And that's how the Lord got me ready this morning to come, and to come praise him. And the, and the praise team just took us on up a little higher. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. You can clap. You can clap. Well, if you come this morning, you have, as Nick said, dropped into the conclusion of our series on uh, the, our five M's. Uh, some brothers in the aisles with Bibles. If you need a Bible this morning, uh, you're visiting perhaps and didn't bring one, uh, we'd love to provide you one. Just raise your hands and uh, these brothers will uh, pass one out to you there. Now, if you, I saw you, I saw, I see members of the church getting Bibles, uh-huh, I saw you, I saw you, you try to be sneaky, you try to reach behind Miss Carol, and I'm looking right at you, you know, you, you that student in school that always got spotted by the teacher, ain't you, uh-huh, <laughs> raise your hands this morning, and if you don't have a Bible at home, let that be our gift to you, we, we would love to give you a copy of God's Word, and we would love more than that to have you enjoy it, read it, and uh, drink in this wonderful God that shows himself to us in, in the Bible. Well, you come to the conclusion of our series that we've called the State of Our Union. And in this series, we have focused on what we call uh, our five M's. These are our five objectives as a church. We started with the, the sort of first part of that, which is the, the spread of the message of the gospel. Then we began to sort of consider how the gospel works in our own lives as we think of, thought about shepherding each other to maturity. 
and how the gospel works on our block as we thought about um, showing mercy to our neighbors and friends in our neighborhood. Last week, we were in the sort of fourth M as we talked about seeking to multiply, to sort of produce more leaders and to produce more churches for the continuing spread of the gospel. And this morning, we come to our last M, which is sending missionaries. And in some ways, this M is kind of the umbrella of them all or the bucket in which all of them kind of drop finally. Everything we talked about from spreading the message to shepherding to maturity to showing mercy to our neighbors to multiplying, all of that is meant to further and deepen mission. All of that is meant to enable us to do what God has left the church in the world to do, to take his gospel and to build his church among all the nations of the world, all the people groups of the world. So the question for us this morning is, what does it mean for ARC to be a church with missions in its DNA? What does it mean for us to be a congregation of Christ followers who take seriously the Great Commission to go into all the world and to make disciples of of all nations? What does it look like for us to send workers to the four corners of the globe? Not just to do the work of the gospel on the four corners of the block, but to see it spread to the furthest reaches of the world. There are many texts that we could go to this morning, uh, but for our purposes, we're going to look at one in 3 John. This is John's third letter. Uh, You find it right before um, the last couple of books of the Bible, Revelation and all that good stuff. 3 John, we want to consider verses 5 to 8 in that letter. As we said before, these are not sort of close expositions, but we are using these texts to, number one, demonstrate that these principles just come right up out of the Bible. It's not things that Pastor T made up or the pastors made up, or we're not just trying to be clever and slick. We're trying to be biblical. And and these are light expositions, number two, so that we can, in a sort of topical way, think about how we've been doing as a church for the last two and a half years, and then sort of think forward about some things the Lord may press upon us to do in the coming five, ten years. All right? So 3 John, verses 5 to 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You remember that in each of these sermons, we've had the same basic outline, sort of four P's that we're thinking through. The, the principle, in other words, we want to try and define that M in sort of in a, in a principle form. Then we want to talk about our progress to date. So how have we done thus far at applying this principle? And then we want to think thirdly about sort of plans going forward. What things might the Lord press us to pursue as a matter of vision? And then finally, we want to sort of pastorally stop and think about what perspective should we have as we embark upon these things. And so the first thing we want to consider uh, is the the principle that this text outlines for us. I, I might summarize this text this way. Here's the principle. 
The church is a family-run partnership to lovingly send missionaries to the four corners of the globe to glorify God by making disciples and planting churches. I'll give that to you again. The church is a family-run partnership. This is family business. To lovingly send missionaries to the four corners of the globe to glorify God by making disciples and planting churches. Let's unpack that a little bit. I'm saying here that the, this is family business. See that there in verse 5, where John sort of writes there, these brothers. Now, these brothers are, are traveling through the church where Gaius is. They're, they're sent out probably from John's church to preach the gospel in other places. And yet they come to this church, and, and John writes to Gaius and says, these are your brothers. Now, what's interesting about that is, notice what he says next. Strangers as they, as they are, though they are. These are missionaries who are traveling to preach the gospel that you really don't know very well personally, but when they show up in your church, you receive them as family. You receive them as brothers and sisters serving the Lord. So these stranger brothers is, is, are sort of the missionaries that have come through this church. Now, the fact that they are family and this is family business has at least two implications. Number one, this means we can't be competitive with other Christian churches. We are not in competition with churches for members. We're in competition with Satan for souls. We, we are not trying to grow large at the expense of other churches. We're not, we're not sort of happy. Let me see. I, See, if you don't plan what you're going to say, you're going to say what you don't plan. So, so, so we, we, we are glad for everyone the Lord sends us here. But the main way we want to grow is through conversion growth, not just transfer growth. A lot of the growth that happens in churches is just Christians moving from church to church, looking to the next big thing. We don't, in that sense, ever want to be the next big thing. We'd be happy to be invisible to people who are already Christians, right? But... We want to join in partnership with all of God's churches to win those who are lost without Christ. This is our partnership, not just in this local church, but this is our partnership in collaboration with all the other gospel preaching churches that take missions seriously. This is why we participate um, with the cooperative program with the International Missions Board. All that is is a bunch of little Baptist churches like ours cooperating across the country, pooling their resources together to send more missionaries out into the world than any of us could send individually. We are partnering as a family to take care of our father's business. It's as if God has started a mom and pop business. But this is the kind of corner store that actually has branches and is meant to have branches all over the globe. And so we're not corporate, we're not slick, we're not all business about it in a sort of worldly sense. We're family. We're brothers and sisters handling our father's business in the world. I love the way Ed Stetzer puts this. You've heard me say this before. It's the only time I quote Ed Stetzer. <laughs> Tell him I said so. <laughs> he writes that it's not that God's church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. Missions is the umbrella, and we're playing our part as a spoke in that work. So this is family business. But number two, now notice as we look at 3 John 5 to 8, that missions grows out of love. 
We do missions and we support missionaries because we love the right things. People who love the wrong things or people who love good things in the wrong order will not find it easy to give themselves to the work of missions. If our loves are disordered or our loves are displaced, it's always going to rival the thing that God loves. But if we love what God loves, the result of that is we give ourselves to the things that God would have us give ourselves to. And we are meant to love four things properly. We're meant to love God and Jesus. We're meant to love our brothers and sisters, our family and the church. We're meant to love, according to this text, those missionaries that go out from among us to serve the gospel in other places. And we are meant to love, number four, the nations that they go to. If that's our focus, love for God above all, love for the family that God is building, and love for those who go out to build the family, and love for those who are meant to be brought into the family through the gospel, that love will work itself out in missionary zeal and missionary fervor. That love will work itself out in people saying, here am I, Lord, send me. And that love will work itself out in saying, I don't feel a call to go, but I give. There are two roles to play, going and giving, and both of them are vital. And if we love these things, then it's going to bubble up into one of two of those things predominantly, going and giving. No church will play its part in the family business unless it's a church marked by love. And this means, beloved, we can never, never settle for the attitude that says, some people care about missions, but I really care about fill in the blank. If missions is family business and it grows out of love, then we must all care about it. As a family committed to love what God loves. This is why we exist in the world. And notice that the brother strangers of verse 5, they go on to the next church where John is and look at the testimony that they give about Gaius' church. These brothers have testified to your love before the church. Main thing missionaries should feel from local churches back home and churches that support them is love. They should be left with the impression that we care for them deeply. That we are hospitable toward them. And that should not just be an impression, an, an, an illusion, a feeling. That, that should be the reality. Notice how John says it here. He says, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for the brothers. You get the sense that Gaius and the hospitable Christians there in, in the church there in 3 John, that they were going out of their way, doing everything they could to equip and support and encourage and to send these missionaries on so that they might feel and know the love of the saints in partnership in mission. John put it this way in 1 John, the first of his letters. If you want to, you can turn there with me. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Well, John, the beloved apostle, writes so much about love, and he's often so very careful to uh, sort of clarify what he means by it. And in our culture, where love is, well, love is just an empty sentiment and an empty word, it's so good to have the Bible clarify these things for us. 
First John 3, verses 16 and 18, John writes this, By this we know love, that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us. That's what love looks like. And we, now notice, ought to lay down our lives for who? For the brothers, for the family. And then he goes on to clarify, right? He says, this is the gospel, right? Jesus died for us. He laid down his life for us to save us from our sins, to take our place in God's judgment uh, so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God because of our sin. That's what love looks like. It lays itself on the line for another. Then he says this in verse 17 to clarify. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, John, he's been real careful to say, don't think you love each other if you see each other in need and then you just kind of turn a blind eye. And that, that startling phrase there, you close off your heart. That's not what love looks like. Love looks like an open heart, which leads to an open hand, which meets the needs of brothers and sisters. And in 3 John, he's applying this particularly to missionaries. We do this for each other as a family, and missionaries are part of our family. We do it for them as well. And what a great testimony for a church to have. Just to encourage you, I think this is our growing reputation. We're not perfect by any means. Right? And there are ways in which the Lord is pleased to grow our love. But I hear it a lot at the door, just from visitors who come usually earlier than us. Right? And, and there, there are a couple of folks here who, who are here and, and meet them and greet them. And, and then they stick around afterwards and have muffins and coffee. And, and they remark on how you were friendly, how you sought them out, how you greeted them, how you cared for them. You should be encouraged that that's God's spirit and grace at work among us. And we should be encouraged to pray for it to be true more and more, more widely and more deeply. This is the reputation all God's disciples are meant to have, according to John 13. By this they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. And here's a striking thing about John 13. When Jesus says that, He has a a missional or evangelistic end in mind because the next thing he says is that by our love for one another, that those who are not yet Christians will know that the Father really has sent the Son into the world. Our love for each other tells the truth about our Father and our Savior. Missions grows out of love. But now in 3 John, mission support then must be God-centered. Notice how strikingly God-centered John is in this little paragraph. He goes on to say, you do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentile. So so the aim the Bible gives us is that we should send out missionaries, notice, on their journey in a manner worthy of God. 
And the reason we should do that is because they have gone out for the sake of the name, for the sake of Christ and and the spread of his glory and the spread of the gospel that the nations might know our Jesus. And, And notice, they have accepted nothing from the Gentiles, those who are not yet Christians, in order to do this. See, Gentiles are the nations who are meant to receive this good news and the gospel is meant to be offered freely. You don't charge people to hear the gospel. You don't take people who are in danger of hell and call them to finance the mission of a church. The gospel is meant to go to people freely without charge. And the way the gospel is made free to the nations is that Christians go and Christians give. And those who go are not meant to worry about the church having their back. They are to go and we are to support them in a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? I thought of three things. Maybe you can think more about this later and add to this list. But to to send them in a manner worthy of God means in a way that pleases the Lord. So that we are generous, not stingy. We send them willingly, not grudgingly. I'm sure there are other sort of characteristics, but God has a large heart. And if we're going to do this in a manner worthy of God, we too must have enlarged hearts. Number two, I think it means we send them at a level that proves that God meets the needs of his people. What witness is it to have a missionary on the mission field worried about whether or not his family is going to eat? Trying to tell people about a God who meets everybody's needs. That don't really work, does it? You know, you're going to tell me about a God who owns cattle on a thousand hills and you can't get a bologna sandwich? That ain't how it's supposed to work. So we want to send our missionaries in a way that illustrates that, that yes, God provides for his people and that trust in him is not disappointed. There's a third thing here. I think in a manner worthy of God means at a level that shows that God's glory is our passion. That God's glory is our passion. What does that mean? Well, I think practically one way we apply this and have applied this at ARC is we we have sought to support fewer missionaries at a greater level as opposed to a lot more missionaries at small amounts. So I've been to church mission conferences, no shade, we're just doing it differently here. I've been to church missions conferences and spoke and been really impressed to see that sort of wall of missions and nations and uh, they may have like 50, 60, 100 missionaries that they're supporting. And it looks really impressive. And then you start to sort of peel back the budget and it's like 50 or 60 people that they're giving $500 a year to. Well, okay, $500 a year counts. Praise God. If that's the widow's might, may he multiply it and may he use it for his people. But I wonder, I wonder what the effect is on the missionary. How hard it would be to assemble 100 churches supporting you at $500 a year. And then they have to report to that 100 churches and have to be constantly coming back stateside to give updates because all of them want you at their missions conference. And and, and to have to be constantly sort of recruiting churches to support you because at any given time, 10 or 15 of those 100 will stop that $500 support. I just don't think that's the best way to serve our missionaries. I think in a manner worthy of God means that 
Ideally, they might have five or six churches, maybe 10 churches that are supporting them at $10,000 or $8,000 in a way that supplies all their needs and enables them to stay on the field doing the work of missions. I think we ought to train ourselves to think that every time our missionaries come home to have to raise support rather than just to rest, that we're maybe failing them in some measure. I don't know what you would add to this, but in a manner worthy of God. That's our, that's our goal. That's our ambition is to send out missionaries in that way. So here's the big question for us. What would it look like for ARC to lovingly take on missions as our family business and do it in a manner worthy of God? That's the question. And as we answer that question, let's start by sort of talking about our progress to date taking stock of what's happened so far. As I said before, we've always wanted global missions in our DNA as part of the fabric of our church. And that meant we've always wanted a portion of our budget invested in, uh, in missions, both locally and internationally. And so practically, in our first two and a half years, what that has meant is that the pastors have set a budget of at least 10% of our offerings to go out into missions. And so is it like the principle of of your own family and your own individual giving? We would encourage you to begin your giving at 10% of your income. And we're doing that as a a church congregation as well. We think of that as a a floor. And what we want to do is see it grow. And it's been interesting, you know, in these first couple of years, many people would say to us, you guys are a church plant. You're just getting started. Don't, Don't worry about missions yet. Do that later. You know, just sort of, you get these resources and use them for the work of the plant itself and, and keep them locally. And I just keep thinking of two passages in the Gospels. One where Jesus sits in the temple with the disciples, watching people making their offerings. And he commends the widow who gives her last two coins. And he points out that many of the other people who have given have given out of their abundance, but she has given all that she has and what she has done will be remembered until he comes. And then I think of another passage in the gospel where Jesus tells a parable about a man that's got a lot of stuff and he's got so much stuff and he's so happy. He's like, you know what? I need a bigger barn. And so he builds a bigger barn and puts more stuff in it. And Jesus tells the parable this way. He says, basically the Lord comes to him and says, you fool, your, your soul is required of you tonight. And so I'm just thinking as a church plant, even as a church plant, we don't want to be building bigger barns. We'd rather be giving what the Lord has given to us, yes, for the work of the ministry here, but also for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so our total missions giving for local and international missions, uh, I'm not sure if you can read that, but that's my attempt at a quick little slide. You see that first column, 2015, we were around for about eight months. We launched in April 2015. At that point, we didn't have any missionaries that we were supporting, but we were setting aside that that 10% of our income, as we talked about. 2016, we got our our first international supported worker, our brother Tim Bird, down in Johannesburg, South Africa, doing great work on the campuses there, who's now moved to Lusaka, Zambia, and just pioneering gospel work on campuses and and with church planting on up into Southern Africa and, and the reaches of Southern Africa. He was the first one that we brought on along with a couple of agencies locally that we began to support. And so in 2016, we expended about 21000 Again, we kept saving what we didn't spend. That's why you see the bigger increase in 2017. 
where in God's grace, we sent out about $91,000 in local and international missions combined. Uh, praise be to God. And so we added people to our, our list of support. Uh, some of you will know Britton Howerton, who's serving uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we added some more folks domestically. In fact, glad to see my brother here, Alex Woods, who is a uh, graduate of HU. <laughs> you know. Uh, Alex and Jonathan Morgan are two persons we support over on Howard's campus uh, doing evangelism and making disciples on Howard's campus. Uh, Shar Bell is down in Virginia. Uh, and so we began to sort of get more contact with people as we were getting our foot as a church and begin more relationships and to see more go out. We budgeted for 2018 uh, about 57000 a little over 57000 uh, for missions this year. And so by God's grace, you can tell me what you think, but I think that's a good start. You know, we're not there yet, uh, but I think that's a good start. And I'll, I'll show you some other statistics later that will indicate why I think that's a good start. So, amen? Well, again, I just want to give you a sense of how that broke out locally and internationally in terms of some of the things that we supported. Uh, locally, uh, the House DC, which has been a good partner to us, allowing us to host our Bible studies there and things of that sort. We've provided some financial support the last two years for their work. Uh, Anacostia High School, where you're sitting here, they've been such wonderful hosts to us and have said to us, uh, we're happy to have you here for as long as you wish to be here. Um, and so we have been working with them to do a few things like trying to rekindle a parent-teacher-student association. We're now trying to build a fundraising organization that would help them raise funds uh, for their work here. Uh, and we have contributed financially to them as well. So they'd be able to uh, buy, buy breakfast and foods on testing days or uh, provide materials for classrooms and things of that sort um, and so on. And then you'll see also um, um, Cornerstone Schools. It's been our privilege to partner with Cornerstone Schools as well. We'd love to see that partnership grow uh, financially. Uh, and then to go to the international side, um, You'll see, again, I made mention to some of these a moment ago, but uh, Tim Bird and Johannesburg. Uh, we've also su provided some financial support to Tim to kind of incubate uh, a funding pool for indigenous South Africans who are looking to sort of do the work of the ministry as well. Uh, and so the aim of missions is not to have a bunch of Western folks running things in all the other countries, but to have an indigenous self-sustaining uh, church in those countries. Uh, and so we feel pleased to be able to contribute to help them get that funding pool off the ground. Brenton, I mentioned uh, the Swansons, uh, who's worked with Rain Ministries, some of our own, uh, our folks that we support. And then we provided some financial support for short-term uh, mission trips as well. So that's a sense of where things have gone. So let me say at this point, in terms of uh, progress to date, a little bit more about what our philosophy has been. Uh, so you, you'll be sort of aware of this. Uh, I've alluded to some of it already. We've chosen to support fewer missionaries and organizations at the start at higher levels than to support many at smaller levels. That's just a philosophical uh, approach that we've taken. And, and we've attempted to sort of prioritize uh, ARC folks and uh, folks that we have a continuing relationship with. Um, so we, we know our brother Alex as a member of this church, raised up uh, on Howard's campus, looking to go back to the campus. Uh, Matt and Stacy, members of this church. Uh, we definitely want to be supportive of those that the Lord raises up from among us and send them out. And we want to be supportive of folks that we can maintain relationships with who are out on the field, like Tim and Brenton and so on. Uh, and one of the things that we know 
is that the typical evangelical approach to missions actually creates a handicap for people who are coming from ethnic backgrounds, right? And what I mean by that is um, many of the folks who are looking to sort of serve on the mission field in one way or the other are coming from church backgrounds and coming from family backgrounds and social backgrounds, but they don't have the sort of social capital to be able to raise funds as an individual. And they may not even be coming from church cultures that prize missions very highly. And so the the ability to raise funds as an individual uh, to reach a support that's a sort of full salary level is actually much harder if you're African-American or Hispanic or coming from some other ethnic background than if you are coming from a, a white traditional evangelical background, which this model is based on. And let me give you a snapshot into that. For example, only 27 of the over 4,000 missionaries in the Southern Baptist Convention, only 27 are African-American. If you look at one of the larger denominations in the African-American church world, or two of the larger, historic ones, you're not... Maybe I shouldn't characterize it. I'm not encouraged by it. You might be. Let's take the African Methodist Episcopal Church. The last year for which I I have data, found data, that church gave $250,000 in that year to international missions. Which maybe sounds like a lot if you just look at that number by itself. But when you consider that there are 3.5 million members in the AME church, and over 8,000 congregations. That breaks out to be about $31 a church. Well, let me put it another way. With with $3.5 million, if you just sort of had a special program in your denomination that said every year we want every AME member to give $1, that would be $3.5 million a year. Not picking on the AME. Uh, National Baptists, some of us come out of National Baptist backgrounds, 31,000 churches in the National Baptist Convention, 7.5 million people in that convention. For the last year that I have data, um, they gave about 31 cents per church. It's not encouraging. So if that's the context you're coming out of, looking to do missions, a context that really has fallen behind its own history, with regard to missions. It's not used to, this, this wasn't always the way African-Americans engaged in missions. If you go to the late 1700s, 1800s, the first missionaries to leave the shore are African-American, George Lyle. Some of the first church planting missions efforts abroad are led by African-Americans who in the late 1700s, 1800s were zealous for missions. And the reasons for why that cooled off. But the point is, the cultural context isn't one that sort of works with this model of individual support raising. Of all the missionaries uh, from the U.S., 118,000, less than 1% are African-American. We think there may be about 300 African-American missionaries in total, uh, if you include campus workers and full-time cross-cultural missions. So, for that reason, we have chosen to do our part to address this picture uh, by looking to support African-Americans and ethnic minorities going to the mission field as generously and sacrificially as we can. So I want to encourage us to have an ambition here. 
You ready? I mentioned this that first Sunday when we did our first M. I want us to encourage us to have an ambition that we would not turn away any legitimate African-American missionary without giving some significant level of support. To figure out that if these young ladies want to go on the mission field for a short-term trip to Sierra Leone, to figure out how we do that, to commit ourselves in some way to supporting that. If we get another Richard Coleman or we get a, a, a Lloyd Chen who will be with us in March or, or we get a number of other missionaries that you may know who come through who are in need of support and maybe struggling to raise support or we have another one of our own like Alex who's struggling to raise support so that he can be full time. He's been at it a year and still not met his goal that, that we would be stirred by God to consider what does it look like to send them in a manner worthy of God and what does that require of us in terms of prayer and generosity and effort to do all the things we can to see that the gospel goes forward in his hands. Let that be our ambition. Since we've been a church, at least one African-American missionary that I know of has left the mission field in Haiti for lack of support. I'm sure there are other stories of that sort that we're not yet aware of. And so here's what I want to put before you as a goal. Now, we have a goal to support 10 long-term, full-time missionaries serving in cross-cultural settings by 2013, and that we support them in terms of our part at $10,000 a year per missionary. That's $100,000 in missions investment a year that we grow to that point in our giving and in our support of those who go out for the sake of the name. Let me ask you, would that be in a manner worthy of God? Or would God have us do more? Is this vision inspired or weak? I think how we answer that is going to depend upon whether or not we are praying people full of faith or whether or not we're walking by sight. So that's the ambition, that's the challenge, that's the, that's the suggestion. So how do we get there? Let me get a, a few words about the plan. And as we've done, we've talked about sort of church-wide kinds of uh, applications and individual level applications. I got nine things here that I want to suggest that we think through. Some of them just practical and philosophical. Some of them, um, some of them having to do with funding. So at the organization level, I think it's going to be really important that we sort of integrate everything we do into a mission's purpose. So in children's church, we will want Jonna and the curriculum and the teachers there to be bringing from time to time this sort of steady drip, this IV of missions impulse uh, into their teaching and into their shaping of our children. Our small groups, our small groups should be praying about the possibility of maybe adopting a missionary or the possibility of taking a short-term trip as a small group. Um, the, 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 the praise team should be thinking in terms of how would the Lord have us, even using singing and, and instrumentation, how would the Lord have us support the work of missions or go in the work of missions and to serve in that kind of way. We, we want missions to be the umbrella and we want everything that we do to sort of be driving toward the advancement of the gospel among people who don't yet know Jesus. All right. Second thing, we ought to staff for missions. If it's the case that it's not that the Lord's church has a mission, but that the Lord's mission has a church. 
I think it means that we need to think about how we staff in such a way as to be working at the staff level toward missions. So to go back to something we suggested earlier, I still, I pray, I hope you pray, I hope you have a sense of this and a a vision for this. I still think it would be dynamite. People don't say that anymore. Date myself. Be awesome. Still date myself. (laughs) It'd be dope. It'd be dope. Okay, let me just go middle class. It would be wonderful if... if, (laughs) If we could could support two full-time women's workers to do the work with us of evangelism and discipleship and counseling in the community as part of our mission to the community and beyond. That's what I mean by staffing. Not for maintenance, but for mission. Right? Um, so those are the things at sort of an organizational level and, and the call for us at some point, uh, a missions pastor. Now, much of my model for this comes from uh, a church that I love, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church outside of Atlanta, Georgia. They're a much bigger church than we are, several thousand members, been at this for a much longer time. But I'm just deeply impressed with how they have aimed everything at missions. So they have a, a quote, missions department with about 10 people in it. And they've sent out, when we were there about five years ago, uh, they were doing their little annual report at their missions conference, and they sent out about 60 or 65 short-term missions trips that year. You know, over half of their congregation had been on short-term trips. Now, that's, that's getting all that you're doing into sort of the missions channel. And so there's much for us to learn from churches like that. Well, not just at the organization level, but at the equipping level. Some of you already feel the Lord calling you to missions. Praise God. If that's you, raise your hands. If you're entertaining that, feel a sense of that, uh, feel like the Lord is stirring something in your heart. Now just look, hold them up. Hold your hands up. Just look around the room. That's, that's amazing. Praise be to God. Yeah, you, you can give God a clap. Praise be to God. Now, as a church, the next thing we have to do is begin to work more intentionally to help you figure out how you get from here to there. Because you don't just go to, as Stephanie wants to, South Sudan because you woke up that morning and decided you're going to buy a plane ticket. There is no missionary by aviation. Right. There's some preparation that has to go on. Right. And here are a couple things for us to think about in the next year or two that we like to get off the ground. We'd love to get off the ground a, a, a new missions reading group. For those who have a sense of a call to missions, whether to go or to give, uh, a group that is regularly thinking through that and discipling and shepherding each other in that way. Uh, I spoke with Pastor Dennis the other night at our elders meeting. Uh, he, he is, I think, excited to begin uh, a reading group. And if you're interested in that, talk with Pastor Dennis in that. Uh, we'd love for us to begin to sort of more intentionally equip ourselves in the work of evangelism. Because again, you don't become an evangelist just because you got on a plane, right? And one of the things I see on the mission field often with a lot of missionaries is they've been on the field for a number of years and they can't tell me the last time they actually shared the gospel with somebody. And so a legitimate question to them is, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? And we don't want to create that problem. And we don't want to create the problem adding more people to the mission field who are not confident in the gospel and so are looking for some other slick program. Right? And so here's what I'd like to do. I'd love to join our short-term activity with a requirement that before you go on a short-term trip that you complete an evangelism class, just a basic evangelism class and be able to talk about how you've shared the gospel with someone. Amen? 
That's all the missionaries clapping. Everybody else like, uh, uh, <laughs> uh. And that connects to our goal on the block. Because as you remember, we've got 81,133 people in this ward to reach with the gospel. And the thing we need to be most fluent in is sharing the gospel. Amen. So this is for all of us and especially our missionaries. And then you see number five there. I would love to see us support in these next couple of years at least one short-term trip a year as a church. Got to start somewhere. First number after zero is one. Right? So we'll start with at least one a year and let's pray and see how the Lord grows that part of our ministry. So then it comes down to funding. How are we thinking about funding? Well, on those short-term trips, and given the picture that I told you before about the difficulty of raising support, is another thing that I learned from Johnson Ferry, that large church in Georgia. As a policy, they support 50% of the cost for anyone who goes on a, on a short-term trip. <laughs> Again, the missionaries are clapping. <laughs> the missionaries are clapping. I set that out there for us as, as an aspiration. Listen, it, these young ladies are the cornerstone who have encouraged us so, so much this morning. My guess is, if they like me at their age, if it's a matter of going to Sierra Leone and that's the plane ticket's going to cost you $2,000, I don't know. The whole trip might cost you three. At 16, as a sophomore, I didn't know nobody who knew nobody who had $3,000. <laughs> Right? And if our contribution to the worldwide missions force is going to come in time from our neighborhood, from people who are saved here and disciple here and sent from this neighborhood, well, then we're going to have to pool our resources together to support that, to make that happen. And so I'm going to suggest that we have as a policy, we grow to the point where as a policy, we support at least half of the expense of anyone who completes that evangelism class, is a member in good standing, uh, and wants to go on a missions trip uh, to spread the gospel. Number seven, I mentioned this earlier, there's no reject policy. Yeah, if if we meet somebody who's solid theologically, is committed to the same things we're committed to in terms of the gospel in the local church, uh, who's African-American or Hispanic or what have you, uh, and struggling race support, that we would find a way not to turn anybody away uh, from supporting them. Number eight, that we would grow our mission investment by a half a percent a year. That is each year we are seeing the amount that we invest in missions grow. And then number nine, for any capital campaign, again, I'm learning this from Johnson Ferry. I, I got no new ideas. I'm still in the good stuff here. But for any capital campaign that we do, so if we should ever build a church and raise funds to build a church or some such thing like that, the first 10% of that campaign goes to missions. so that we're not putting maintenance before mission. We're not not putting buildings before the growth of the church. Amen? Amen. Y'all with me? So here are the questions that I want you to sort of ponder individually and to pray about individually. I have three of them. Number one, how will I pray for the nations? So our work in missions has already begun, and it begins on our knees. It continues on our knees, and this is a way that all of us should be participating in the spread of the gospel and the building of the church around the world is in prayer. Remember what Jesus says there, the the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers. We've got to pray about this, beloved. So let me encourage you to get a copy of Operation World, if you like. This is a book that sort of talks about all the countries in the world and, and the advance of the gospel in those countries. Or go to a website like the Joshua Project. There are going to be resources there that gives you a little stuff to sort of pray uh, each day. It's to pray for people groups. You've, 
Use our bulletins. You've noticed in our bulletins that we always have in our bulletins a people group there that we're meant to be praying for. Uh, that's what I was praying for this morning, for the Songhai people in Burkina Faso. And that comes right out of like the Joshua Project. So there are resources out there to use to grow in our knowledge of the state of missions and to fuel our prayer. Second question. Well, ask yourself, how will I give to the nations? How will I give to the nations, to the spread of the gospel to the nations? Now, you're already doing that when you give to the budget. So a portion, as we've already said, of our regular giving goes right to the spread of missions and the support of missions in our budget. So praise God. Everyone here who has given and has hoped to give, you're already contributing to that in that way. But is there more that the Lord would have you do? Are there individual missionaries that you or your family would support individually? Are there needs that you're aware of that maybe the whole church isn't aware of that the Lord is sort of percolating in your heart to give to beyond what you give already to the local, to the local church here? The work of mission. So how will I give to the nations? And number three, how will I go to the nations? How will I go to the nations? Start with your neighborhood. How are you going to evangelize your neighbor? Take a short-term trip. Do something with my small group or church ministry. Is the Lord calling me to go long-term? And how will I prepare to get from here to there? So those are your questions to do homework on. How will I pray for the nations? How will I give for the nations? How will I go to the nations? Let's end as we've always ended with a little bit of perspective. And I want to bring all these things together, this series here, where we kind of laid out ambitions in each of the sermons. And um, I want to sort of pull forward some of those things from the previous sermons to remind us of what we're sort of thinking about as a whole. Remember, and I made reference to it just a moment ago, that when we think about the the message of the gospel in the four corners of the block, that there's about 80,000 residents in Ward 8. And our ambition is each of us as members, the 135, 136 of us, each of us each year lead someone to Christ by sharing the gospel with them and see them grow so that next year there's twice the number that are doing the same thing, leading someone to Christ. And the amazing thing is if we replicate ourselves in that way, then in just about 10 and a half years, we could see the whole ward evangelized and won to Christ. So we're trying to reach 81,000 people in the next 10 years. And then when we think about what we have committed to in terms of mercy, well, the mercy needs are, are far bigger than us. And you remember we were saying that we cannot do everything, but we must not do nothing. And, and we've got some things that we've already committed to, like DC 127, trying to keep families together and to provide supports for families in their time of need. We've got education commitments that we've been thinking about, whether it's Anacostia High School or Cornerstone School. We want to more and more figure out how we plug into those efforts. And then I think there's some, there's some good rumbling here about how do we sort of also express commitment to employment, to job-related things. It's an organization called Job for Life that Sarah Brown and uh, Caitlin have uh, mentioned to me that I'm, I'm encouraged by with the little bit I've seen of their website. And they ask a provocative question. They say, essentially, if you look at where churches sort of spend their benevolence funds, you get like 60% in like housing and groceries and another 20% in like clothing and things of that sort. When you come down to employment, it's about 2%. And they ask this question, what if churches flipped it? 
And 80% of our effort went into helping people get gainful employment and be competitive in the workplace. Many of those other things sort of take care of themselves. And so there's some folks having some conversation. I think this Sunday or next Sunday, the, the housing um, small group that's been thinking about housing insecurity in the, in the community is going to give some time sort of brainstorming, thinking about these things as well. Contact our sister Jadine or Caitlin or what have you. Maybe that's a conversation the Lord would have you join. And maybe that's something that the Lord would have the church sort of take on more fully is how we contribute to gainful employment in our community. I've mentioned the staff of, of two sisters already. Uh, multiplication, again, we want in the next three years or so uh, to have seven to ten active, committed, godly, faithful pastors uh, serving the church. Uh, and in that same period of time, we want to have a, another five or six deacons uh, who are serving the church. Continue to pray for Precious and Lloyd as we come towards March and the possibility of calling them. And we want to establish a church planting network that sort of gives some organization and leadership to seeing churches planted in neighborhoods like ours here in Anacostia. We've already been talking about the missions work that needs to happen. And so the question is, with all of this as an ambition, what perspective must we have? We'll conclude in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, you guys will know the parable of the sower. This well-known story that Jesus tells that begins in verse 1. Jesus says there to his disciples, or the Bible says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower, a farmer, went out to sow, went out to plant seeds. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And a few verses later, Jesus interprets that parable for them. And in this parable, he he warns us really of, of three dangers. Three dangers that need to be included in our perspective as we do this work as a local church. Number one, he says in verse 18, here's the end of the parable of the sword. Here's the interpretation. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the devil or the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The first danger is the devil. Hearing the word of God is spiritual warfare. Holding on to the word of God is spiritual warfare. The word goes out like seed, but there's a devil like a bird who wants to swoop in and snatch it up. We cannot be surprised as is in the case of Acts chapter 13, which we read earlier, that if those who go out from among us or we go to our neighbors, we we cannot be surprised that we will face demonic warfare, that the enemy will not want to lose any territory in this community or any territory among the nations. This is war. We are combatants. We will win because we're on God's side. But we cannot lose perspective 
that there is a real enemy opposing us. Well, Jesus goes on in the parable and he says this, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So they heard the word, they got happy, danced a little jig. Yet, He has no root in himself, so the word isn't rooted deeply in this person. It only endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So we contend not only with the devil, but we contend also with distress. The persecution, the opposition that comes up, and if we're not rooted, or better, if the word's not rooted in us, there's the danger of falling away. So we got to be careful that as we go out into the world, we are stronger than Christ, in Christ, than the world is stronger against Christ. And we're rooted. And then number three, verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the danger of distraction. The world is always enticing. The world is always saying, come taste, my, come taste my treats. Come delight yourself in the sweets I offer you. And we can begin to be so caught up in the things of the world. Mortgage payments, raising children, football games, all kinds of things. From good things to really trivial and bad things. And they all have this one potential of choking out the word of distracting us from the things of Christ. That's a danger. Our mission falters if we give in to any of these dangers. The devil, distress, or distraction. What we want to be are disciples. Notice what the Lord goes on to say in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Here's a picture of the Word of God taking root in our hearts and growing up and producing fruit in each and every one of our lives. And that's the one who has held the Word, understood the Word, applied the Word. We've got to be that kind of church community, undistracted by the world, undeterred by the distress of believing the word and unswayed by the devil because we're committed to Jesus, to obeying Jesus, to in faith pursuing the things of Christ. Now you may be here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and this all sounds kind of different to you. I mean, it sounds maybe even a little weird to you to see grown people talking about the devil, right? And you may have images in your mind of Somebody in a red costume with a ponytail and a pitchfork. Beloved, that's the devil's best trick. It's to make you think he doesn't exist. Or that if he is, he's as weak as a cartoon character. The devil is real. And he prowls about seeking whom he may devour. He is a destroyer. He is a liar. He is an accuser of the brethren. And he lives to come against God and his people. And if you think he's not out there, he's already winning in your life. And not only is the devil a danger to you, but if you're not yet a Christian, the world is a danger to you. 
the things that you would live for, if they're not things that are in a manner worthy of God, if they're not things that would please Jesus, those things too are destroying you. We live in a world that's full of people who live for money and power and sex and cars and all kinds of things and fame. And those things are choking them. Those things are murdering them because they're not things that give life. Only Jesus gives life. Only Jesus gives hope. But I want you to know that if you follow Jesus and you obey his word, there will be people who stop liking you, who talk bad about you, who oppose you, and who will try to get you to go back to the things you were doing. You'll find yourself all of a sudden sort of on separate sides from people you used to run with, not wanting to do the things you used to do. That's called conversion. If that happens in your heart, a miracle has happened in your heart. God has changed your heart. God has made you to see the world the way it really is and made you to see Jesus the way he really is. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings who died for your sins. He proved his love in that way, in dying for your sins and mine. And God raised him from the grave three days later so you could be free from the world and the devil and even your own desires that don't please God. The miracle is God will make you new, brand new. will give you a new life and a new heart will cleanse you of your sin and make you right with him. But you must believe in Jesus and you must follow Jesus even if the whole world stands against you. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. But you will gain an eternity. You will gain heaven. If you're here this morning, that's the perspective God wants you to have if you're not yet a Christian. That Jesus will give you life. And following him is worth everything. Confess your sins to God. Ask for his forgiveness. Believe in God and follow Jesus. And he will save you. We'd like nothing more to encourage you in doing that. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you're looking for a church home and you're thinking about ARC, this is what we're committed to. If you're a member of this church already, this is what you've signed up for. And you may be thinking all along as you've heard various things like move into the community. You thought I forgot about that, right? <laughs> you hear things like that, you go, man, I didn't sign up for that. Isn't it just like Jesus to stretch you into things you didn't sign up for? Isn't it just like Jesus to do more with your life than you bargained for? And isn't it just like Jesus to come to you with stuff at the least convenient times. If you walk with Jesus long enough, you know he interrupts your life and redirects your life and stretches you beyond yourself. That's when we're useful to Jesus. Not when we're living small, safe lives of our own control, but when we lay it all out there for him and say, have your way. That's the perspective that he's calling us to. Now, let me, on this moving into the neighborhood thing, Let me say one final thing this week. The best reason for you not to move into the neighborhood is if you move across the world to another culture to make Jesus known. Anything beneath that, we need to talk about it. You're free. You're free. Use your freedom. But let's talk about it. 
and let's pray about it. But if you want to live somewhere among a people who do not know Jesus and make that your home so that you can introduce them to Jesus, that's the best move you can make. That's the move God wants us all to make, whether it's to Anacostia or whether it's to Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone. And may the Lord give us grace and faith and hope to trust him and to do what he calls us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I have the sense that you're only beginning with us. It may be that after a couple of years, some of us feel established as a church. And it may be that we have just kind of drifted into comfort. We've got comfortable relationships with people we know. Maybe we live in comfortable places, routines, neighborhoods. Maybe we're comfortable with giving. I I, I don't know. You know every heart in this room. And we praise you for comfort. For the gift that it is. But we do ask that you would help us to know the difference between comfort and complacency. We do ask, O Lord, that you would help us to know how to walk by faith and not by sight. If our vision has been too focused on right now and right here, oh Lord, lift our eyes to see Christ in his glory, to see him in his kingdom and his realms, and lift our eyes to see something more of your heart for the nations so that our vision is enlarged and our hearts are enlarged. And yes, we're shaken out of complacency and we walk by faith. If we've set goals for ourselves that are entirely achievable in our own wisdom and our own power, please mark them out. And please inspire us, O Lord, to give ourselves to things that will require a lifetime and will require the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the sneaking suspicion that there's more to following you than we ordinarily experience. We have the sneaking suspicion that you're calling us up higher and calling us out farther than we've gone so far. And we ask you, O Lord, not to allow us to be afraid to dream. Not to allow us to be afraid to hope. Not to allow us to shrink back into what's comfortable or to rest on our laurels. There are billions of people who will die and go to hell if they do not hear about Jesus and believe on him. Lord, let that reality move us. Let it move us to think nothing of ourselves and more about Jesus and to give more of ourselves to the work of your kingdom.
We are utterly dependent upon you to do this in our lives. And we do pray, come, have your way with us. Have your way, dear Lord. Make us to bear fruit a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, for the glory of your name and the joy of your church. Amen.